into the 4 o'clock show for your Thursday afternoon. It is Brett with you. As a heads up, our program is pre-recorded today, but we do have three interviews lined up for you. As coming up, we are going to be speaking with Filiberto Nolasco Gomez. He is the editor of Workday Minnesota, as we're going to be talking about a couple of pieces that he recently wrote. One has to do with the prison labor industry, and then another on a call center in Mendota Heights that is going to be laying off over 150 union workers. Certainly not good news there. But before we get to those, we're going to talk about this very ambitious proposal that is being released by the organization Growth and Justice. Now, if you're not familiar with Growth and Justice, it's basically a research and advocacy organization that develops innovative public policy proposals based on independent research and civic engagement. And in the coming weeks, they're going to be releasing what's called the Minnesota Equity Blueprint, which is basically a nonpartisan set of proposals that is designed to help with any quality in Minnesota. So joining us now is Dane Smith. He is a senior fellow and president emeritus at Growth and Justice. And to start off our interview, Dane is going to explain a little bit about what exactly the Minnesota Equity Blueprint is. It will help us address the two existential, gigantic challenges we face. One is climate action. Um, And uh, The consensus around this from business and everywhere else is really, really growing and finally there, I think. The other has always been a concern for progressives for more than a century, and inequality in all its forms. Economic inequality between uh, those at the very top of the income ladder who are getting more wealth and income all the time, and uh, and b- between them and the middle class and certainly low-income folks, growing percentage of people are actually economically insecure in our state and our nation. Um, and then the racial disparity, which is uh, kind of overlays and interconnected to the economic inequality, uh, has become such a concern that just this week we had a proposal around a a constitutional amendment in Minnesota that uh, drives towards educational uh, equity and in terms of the racial disparities in education. Um, And then there's regional inequality. Everybody is aware of the fact that rural areas are economically distressed. Similarly, uh, urban core has always faced problems uh, that aren't, don't seem to be going away. And so, what we need is a set of uh, state policies, local government policies, actions that individuals can take and that nonprofits are already uh, undertaking, as well as businesses that address these, these sets of problems. Basically, inequality and climate action. And they need to be tied together, too. So this is a really ambitious project. Uh, the document itself, the blueprint, will probably run to about 150 pages, um, and it will be just chock full of policy proposals, either the legislature or local governments, um, best practices, things that uh, local folks are doing to, to work on these challenges and so forth. And how did you go about writing that over 100-page document? Who had input in writing it? And as I'm sure you're going to bring up, too, there were certainly lots of different voices that you guys were listening to to try to put this together. Yes. 
we, you know, we, we draw on our own uh, two decades of experience on the ground here in Minnesota. Growth and Justice was founded 20 years ago. We've been um, studying and considering the, these problems and these challenges and, and have been a, a source for reliable and practical policy advice for 20 years. But for this project, we really did reach out to Minnesotans themselves. We created a, a network of uh, people called the Thriving by Design Network. We held, we invited everyone in the state to these uh, gatherings. We had a convening out in Granite Falls uh, and then another one in Hinkley. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis on listening to greater Minnesota and rural folks on this. We had um, sessions also in the Twin Cities, of course, um, in the suburbs, in the in the cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. So we really uh, cast the net broadly for ideas and input. We had uh, something like 300 people involved, uh, and they came up with 700 ideas. And um, many of those, you know, we don't have 700 specific solutions. Many of them are combined. But we do have scores, more than 100 uh, ideas and policy proposals in the blueprint. So, but it really is a grassroots effort. We listen to folks at every level, um, from every sector, from every region, and we put a real emphasis on listening to our the diversity of our cultures in Minnesota. Um, the and, and a key uh, element of this blueprint is to get at this disparity between people of color uh, and our white population and to really listen to um, uh, African Americans, Native Americans, Latinos, Asians, people with disabilities, GLBT, women, all of our community. And you also talked about as well, and I think this is really important, how you're including the input from people who come from rural areas as well. Because naturally, sometimes when people that come from rural areas look and see, oh, well, it's another initiative by people based in the metro area, and it's only going to benefit them. And as you talked about, that's not really the case, because often we see economic challenges or other challenges that are actually relatively similar between the urban cores and also rural areas. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Progressive policy is in the interests of rural folks. Uh, They benefit from public investment, from infrastructure, from transportation, from schools, uh, from all the things that that we provide through our community effort. Um, and, um, And we actually know that there is a lot of voices out there who disagree with the sort of anti-government, anti-immigrant, um, anti-urban uh, refrain that uh, it too often is, is, is represented as the voice of rural Minnesota. So as well, this is technically a nonpartisan project as well. It's not just something that's going to be something that will appeal to Democrats or appeal to Republicans. You really made an effort to make sure this is nonpartisan. Over the years, Growth and Justice has worked very hard at finding common ground, especially with business leaders and philanthropy 
on reasonable solutions to our inequality problems. Uh, you know, our, our label, growth and justice, is a marker of respect for the private sector. And um, the word growth, we, I mean, our premise is that social justice and economic justice is actually good for business growth. And we can find a lot of agreement there um, around policies like early education, which has had bipartisan support from the beginning, a lot of business support. So, um, you know, the, the, uh, the blueprint will be true to our uh, abiding commitment to nonpartisan, uh, but yes, progressive solutions. And that was just part one of our conversation with Dane Smith again of Growth and Justice talking about the Minnesota Equity Blueprint. We still have lots more to cover, including more details about the Minnesota Equity Blueprint and how it could be implemented. So we'll get to that coming up next. Listening to AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the four o'clock show with Brett. Let's get back to my conversation now with Dane Smith of Growth and Justice. As we've been talking about this ambitious new proposal, the Minnesota Equity Blueprint, as we're going to go through more details with the Minnesota Equity Blueprint and how it could be implemented. So let's get back to the conversation with Dane. So how do you plan on getting groups on board with this, whether it's businesses or also, very importantly, the Minnesota legislature? Do you guys plan on talking to them over the coming weeks and months? Because obviously you do need to get them on board to hopefully get this implemented. Right. Well, many uh, leaders in both caucuses, all four caucuses, um, are aware of us and um, certainly the governor who said in his inaugural address that Equity has to, we must ensure equity in everything we do, that's a direct quote, uh, are aware of this work and we're talking to them and, and uh, showing them, you know, previews of the, of the proposals. So we are working both the grass tops, but we will, and the grassroots, we will be going out um, uh, when we do the rollout in late February, we'll actually uh, be connected uh through um, Zoom and through other electronic um, means to greater Minnesota communities. We'll, we frequently are on the road making presentations in greater Minnesota all throughout the state, uh, church groups, Kiwanis groups, and so forth, uh, really trying to capture their uh, attention and then their energy and commitment to the idea of equity. Um, and equity really is uh, is coming into its own as an as an idea uh, that animates um, a large majority of people. I like the word because equity is a business term, and it connotes ownership and um, owning some stock or owning a piece of the action, uh, being a stakeholder, and that's something that conservatives certainly should appreciate, and that's what we need to do uh, for all our people, to, to confer, up, to, to, to bring them into the equity proposition. There's been equality for that reason. Um, but we do think that, uh, that the time is right for this. 
that this is catching on. Uh, a couple of examples. The Star Tribune had a front-page story just a couple months ago about how the Target Foundation, which is the philanthropy that draws its resources from our largest corporation, has decided that all its giving will be uh, around the idea of equity, around these inequalities. And then um, just uh, in the last day or so, we've heard the Federal Reserve uh, Bank of Minneapolis talk about uh, prosperity for all being its uh, new kind of mission. And um, along with that, talking about an amendment to achieve education equity and reduce disparities or eliminate disparities in, in educational outcomes. I like what you were talking about, too, is that there's so many different forms of equity because, unfortunately, in these very partisan times, sometimes when people hear that word equity, it does get politically charged. But as you're bringing up, equity it can take place in so many different forms, whether as you're talking about whether it's racial disparities or disparities between the LGBTQ community or also rural versus urban. It comes in so many different right. aspects, and I think by this project trying to encompass all of these different aspects it might give you a chance to have some successes coming up in the next few sessions. Uh, yes, absolutely. The other thing is that the Blueprint will have more than 20 little story boxes that that it, that uh, draw attention to some really interesting, fun, and um, inspiring things that already are underway. Um, uh, education partnerships in local communities where, like in Northfield, they have, they've managed now to, to graduate and place most of their Latino students into colleges. Um, uh, another example might be that climate generation this a whole new uh, generation of, of young people who are learning about climate uh, change, committed to climate action. It's like a, it's like a school for Greta Thunbergs. Um, they are they're uh, really doing some great things and not just protesting, but really working with their local communities to get more, um, climate uh, action policies in the in the city halls and county governments, and to, and to convert to renewable energy, you know, local government buildings and so forth. Anyway, there's we we have more than I think twenty of these stories that they draw attention to the fact that we can't just expect government to do everything. Obviously, we've got to we can take actions on our own right in our local community, as individuals, as small groups of people, uh, to, to, to really move the ball on both equity and, and climate action. And, and more than just climate action, of course, the, the climate change um, threat involves our water and our land quality as well. More than half of our water, according to the most recent analysis, is impaired in some way. Um, and what's more precious to Minnesota's identity than water? It's in our name, land of sky blue waters, and and so it's a, it's it really is a, um, the blueprint is is designed to show the way, and and be more than just a wonky list of bills that have to be passed. 
Right, exactly, because I think that, yeah, it becomes much more understandable, not just for people reading it, but also as you're talking about people at the legislature and also the business community, since you touch on that as well, uh, for recommendations for the business community. Yeah, to make it very understandable, and as you said, not just some wonky document that's using all sorts of language that people can't understand or bureaucratic language. So, Right. So, the, oh, go ahead. Yes. And the, one of the really encouraging things that we draw attention to is how often uh, business leadership, uh, which typically allies itself at the highest level with Republican or conservative policy, really is coming on board on a lot of these key things. Uh, there's money to be made in renewable energy, and we have a growing number. Uh, we have a, 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 several associations of renewable energy business enterprises uh, going in the state now. Um, we've got, we know how business views immigrants. They need workers desperately. Uh, they are welcoming immigrants. They're joining efforts um, to kind of reverse this anti-immigrant uh, tide that was unleashed in 2016. Um, and they are, um, they're with us on the idea of welcoming newcomers of all races and cultures into our state. That's where our growth is happening, actually. Uh, another issue is transit and transportation. Business is there on that. And so that's, that's, that's encouraging and really important to, to, to emphasize. So as the report is going to be released uh, very soon here in 2020, what are the next steps your group is going to be doing after that report is released, and how can people follow along and help out with it? Well, we'll be also, uh, this will be released in late February as the legislature is getting underway, and we will pick, as we always do, a dozen or so legislative initiatives that we, that we think have to happen first, um, and put our immediate attention on things like a maximum bonding bill, which is crucial to greater Minnesota's economic development, um, and uh, uh, some more efforts around uh, things like a driver's license for immigrants, um, and a half a dozen to a dozen proposals that are on the table right now in front of the legislature as a holdover from the last session. And, of course, this legislative session um, is not a budget-setting session, so the, so the scale of activity is reduced. But the more important thing we will do is, is take the blueprint on the road, um, uh, get support for it in a general way, and try to try to win over Minnesota hearts and minds around the idea that this is job one for the state, that we simply can't continue to be a great place to live and a great place to do business unless we achieve racial, economic, and regional equity and we, and we simultaneously tackle climate change um, and, and take climate action. So it's, a, it's both a, a broad... Um, clarion call for people to reorganize their activities and their thinking around um, these principles, as well as some specific advocacy for legislation and, and local policy, too. All right, Dane, one final question before we have to let you go. And where can people follow along with this as the process continues? 
Uh, our website has lots of information on it, even has some previews of the chapters in the blueprint, and it's at www.growthandjustice.org. Growth and Justice is spelled out G-R-O-W-T-H-A-N-D-J-U-S-T-I-C-E dot org. And uh, uh, all our contact information is on that website as well as uh, uh, just plenty of information about All right, very good. We've been speaking with Dane Smith. He is the Senior Fellow and President Emeritus at Growth and Justice, talking about the Minnesota Equity Blueprint. And, Dane, really appreciate you joining us on the program today. Well, uh, I have. Uh, I hope to come back. We'll, this will be, uh, I think, a, a hot topic uh, over the next few months, and I would love to come and elaborate on some of the details in the Blueprint uh, in future days and weeks. Definitely. We will be following up with you. Dane, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. And coming up next, we'll be speaking with Filiberto Nolasco Gomez. He is the editor of Workday Minnesota, a publication that covers labor news at both the local level here in Minnesota and also the national level, as we'll be talking about a couple of topics, including the prison labor industry. So stay tuned. That's on the way next. But first, here's the news from Public News Service. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, Brett Johnson on the 4 o'clock show. Well, we're joined now by Filiberto Nolasco Gomez. He is the editor for Workday in Minnesota, a publication that follows closely labor news in Minnesota and also around the country. You can learn more at WorkdayMinnesota.org as we're going to be talking about a couple of pieces that Filiberto wrote recently. So thanks so much for joining us on the program today, Filiberto. Good to have you back on the show. Yeah, good to be back. So let's start off and talk about what you wrote about the prison industry. So we'll go through a little background first. You wrote extensively about prison labor, I believe, back in 2018, after about a year and a half of doing investigative research on prison labor, and Workday was able to publish, I believe, a two-part series on work conditions and the experiences of incarcerated people in the prison industry. So what people might not be aware of, though, is that this group called MinCor contracts with businesses to provide labor from prisoners. And as you wrote about, uh, people might not be aware, but we actually do have prison labor here in Minnesota that's done from private companies that actually contract with MinCor. It was really strange when I started researching prison labor because I found that no one had really reported on it. And it was given that there's greater attention paid to prison labor because of the movie The 13th and the book The New Jim Crow. It was just it surprised me that it just hadn't been something that people spent a lot of time looking at. And, you know, what I found is that there's a little bit of confusion when I talk about it because MinCor sounds like a separate private company, but it's actually part of the Department of Corrections, has its own CEO, infrastructure, et cetera. It's just the way that they market out to universities and colleges. And some of the most common products are dorm furniture, office furniture. So if you're ever curious, you can look underneath uh, you know, a chair or a table, and if it says Mincor, it was produced uh, in prisons by men that are incarcerated and paid about a quarter an hour. 
Yeah, absolutely, and we're going to definitely get into that. But yeah, MinCorp, as you said, it actually is from the Department of Corrections, and they contract with these private companies, and this is all 100% legal, which I kind of find interesting because we just had Todd Axtell, who is the police chief in St. Paul, writing about how we should be removing slavery language from our Constitution, and yet here we go, we largely kind of do have slavery within the prison labor industry. Part of the reason why this is legalized is because inmates aren't considered workers, right? It's, right, right. it's part of you know, Supreme Court case after Supreme Court case says that it's a condition of their confinement, so they're not protected by any sort of workplace rules or standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and let's talk about that a little bit more because a lot of the uh, prisoners don't even have real labor protections, and even if they do want to challenge whether they're actually being paid minimum wage, well, good luck actually launching a legal challenge when you're from prison. Right, correct. So let's talk about one of these companies that is currently contracting with Mincor. It's called Anagram, and again, they're one of the contractors, and they make balloon packaging, fleece pants, office furniture, docks, and they provide laundry services, and as you also talked about, they make dorm furniture. And recently, we've seen a major shift in labor needs in some of the prisons here around Minnesota, and you've been reporting on that in Workday Minnesota. So can you explain what happened and why it's important why we should follow along with this? Yeah, so there's there's an inmate that I visit on a regular basis that I was part of the reporting that mentioned that it seemed like there was a lot of people being laid off in Faribault prison that were doing anagram work. And anagram is a balloon manufacturer. And so all the men and now increasingly women that work for anagram just fold balloons for eight to 12 hours a day. And so any balloon that you touched most likely was folded by an inmate in Minnesota prisons or Iowa prisons or other places. And so what my reporting indicates is that there's a major shift away from workers in Faribault. They're being laid off. And why this is important is because workers in Faribault, if they're working for Anagram, which sells stuff outside of Minnesota, so it's a higher federal rate, make uh, somewhere between 6 and $7 an hour. That said, 80% of those wages can be deducted, deducted because of uh, federal rules. Uh, if you're not getting those jobs that pay $7 an hour, you're going back to being paid a quarter of an hour. So it's a massive, massive pay decrease for these, uh, for the men. What's interesting is it seems like a lot of these jobs are being shifted to the women's prison. And I still can't figure out or have been explained to as to why this shift is happening, but it is a, a massive economic shift within the prison population in terms of pay. Yeah, and even as you bring up, as they get about 80% of their salaries deducted because of room and board, which, again, key point, is technically legal, which is kind of unbelievable to me. Yeah, they are being replaced by these jobs where you are making a quarter an hour or sometimes even less, which, again, is also legal. And you haven't been able to get any sort of comment from Anagram or even Mincor on why exactly this happened and why we're having this shift in labor from one prison to another. Yeah, Mincor says there's no real reason for it, but that, that's just kind of hard. It's hard to understand that there isn't uh, a systemic sort of thing happening. I think one of the things that's important to point out, too, is that when the Department of Corrections explain why it's important to, for inmates to work, they always point to the Victim Restitution Fund as a, as a reason why you know, these deductions are really important. But in reality, most of the deductions are room and board. So in effect, inmates are paying for their own confinement. Absolutely. 
So let's move on to another topic that you wrote about in Workday in Minnesota, and that's this call center that is actually going to be laying off a number of employees in Mendota Heights. It's called Alorica. They're a California-based company, and basically by March of 2020, they plan on laying off 158 workers, so a little over, yeah, several hundred workers could be laid off because of uh, what Alorica is going to be doing. So tell us a little bit about what's been happening and why they're saying they're going to be laying off these workers who are represented by the Communication Workers of America Union. Yeah, this comes as somewhat of a surprise. Since last year, Alorica said that they were actually going to expand their operations uh, in in Mendota Heights. And a lot of these call center workers actually work for AT&T and they contract out, Alorca contracts out with a lot of different companies, but the, specifically the ones uh, in Mendota Heights, I think work for AT&T. But irregardless of that, uh, it's a surprise because uh, Alorca said they were going to expand operations and everyone was feeling really positive about it. And then suddenly today they say they're moving all the jobs to the Philippines. And uh, CWA, to their credit, has been really following what's happening in the Philippines, trying to understand what this means for their workers, not just in the United States, but also in the Philippines. And what they found was that for some Filipino workers, uh, particularly women, it's a contractual uh, obligation not to get pregnant. And so they actually, it was reported that they actually do check their period to make sure they have their periods every month uh, to you know, fulfill this contractual obligation. There's lower labor standards in the Philippines. So all in all, it seems like a really bad deal for workers generally, both for those in Minnesota and the Philippines. Yeah, and we've been seeing this for years and years where companies, yeah, shift their jobs overseas just to basically save on the bottom line, as I think you talked about in the article as well. It's not just in Minnesota where Alorica has been doing this. It's been all over the country with some of their domestic call centers that have been shifted overseas. Yeah, and because these are union-protected jobs, these are middle-class jobs that provide them excellent benefits. And uh, the folks that I've talked to that are concerned about this, that worked in these call centers, they've been there for 20, 30 years, and suddenly these jobs are gone. And in an economy that's increasingly, we're seeing increased inequality in our economy, this is a big strike. Even though it's not a big group of workers, it's symbolically a massive strike against those strong middle-class jobs. Yeah, absolutely. So, have we heard anything from CWA on if they're trying to fight this or maybe try to talk to Alorica to see if some of these jobs can be saved? What have we been hearing from the union? Well, that's and that's that's the peculiar part because there were a lot of conversations between the union and Alorica, and they did agree to expand the facility, and then suddenly they did this. So, and I think I think even CWA is sort of confused and unsure, and I you know I expect to hear more from them over the coming months. It's scheduled to be closed in March, so there is a bit of time to figure out figure something out, I suppose. Yeah, hopefully we will end up seeing some good news from that. But as you talked about, yeah, that's certainly not good to be seeing 158 middle-class jobs that are going to be eliminated within the coming months. We've been speaking with Filiberto Nolasco Gomez. He is the editor of Workday Minnesota, and you can follow along his work over at WorkdayMinnesota.org. Hey, Filiberto, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And again, do recommend you check out WorkdayMinnesota.org for the latest on labor news in Minnesota and around the nation. Stay tuned. One final segment before we wrap things up for the 4 o'clock show here on Thursday afternoon. And welcome back to AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson here on the 4 o'clock show. 
So for our final segment, we're actually going to play back an interview I conducted with Peter Callahan of MenPost a couple of months ago. Again, Peter writes about Minnesota politics for MenPost. And the reason why I'm going to be playing this back is that we head into the next legislative session. We actually do have quite a budget surplus. And of course, during that session, we expect to hear a lot of debate on how that surplus should be spent. Now, in my conversation with Peter from a few months ago, we talked about Minnesota's budget reserves. We'll go through some of the background of the Minnesota budget reserves and how it compares to other states. Just thought we would revisit this topic since Minnesota's budget surplus has been in the news recently. So again, here's part of my conversation with Peter Callahan of MinPost. And the first one is something you recently wrote about in terms of whether the state of Minnesota is weather is ready to weather the next recession because we often hear about talks in the news is are we heading to a recession what's going to happen if we get to a recession and the question is are we actually ready if we do have that inevitable recession so the first thing i want to ask you peter is that a number of organizations uh, some private and some at the state level i believe including the department of revenue have conducted some tests to see how we could weather a possible recession can you talk a little bit about some of the groups that are starting to run these tests and how they actually work? Well, the primary, uh, the state does its own stress test, uh, mainly on revenue, in which they run different uh, economic scenarios through some uh, software and decide, uh, make a guess as to how they will perform in different kinds of uh, recession scenarios. But the, what triggered me wanting to write about this was uh, the Pew Charitable Trust that does a lot of work on state government. Uh, did a sort of a 50-state analysis as to how states were prepared in a very various uh, measures. They also had some warnings and some tips for how to go about getting better prepared. But generally, they found that Minnesota was in pretty good shape, better than most, uh, because they have a large reserve fund that they have set aside, and because they stress test at least on the revenue side. Uh, and uh, they use they uses that to determine what level of reserve they should have. Yeah, because looking through this and what you wrote again in your piece in MinPost, you talked about how the how a report by uh, Management and Budget recommended that a budget reserve be in each state of about four point nine percent, and we're pretty close to hitting that. As we're at, I believe, uh, currently two point oh seven five. The recommendation is two point three billion which is pretty close to where we should be. And as you talked about, we are in better shape than a lot of other states. When you were doing your research, do other states not even have a budget reserve or is it just not as high as we have? Uh, talk about some of the comparisons to uh, other states. Well, it is. I mean, one thing is the, the what they called the rule of thumb was that you should have that uh, as a percentage of your annual revenue. Uh, Minnesota has it as an uh, as a percentage of its biennial revenue, which is how it uh, budgets. So much larger for Minnesota than other states. You know, other states have had trouble re- sort of refilling rainy day funds. They don't have them as uh, hardened in, say, a state constitutional protection as Minnesota does. Minnesota also has some automatic transfers into that fund. In fact, by the end of this year, if there is uh, excess revenue uh, collected, which there will be, one-third of it flows automatically into the rainy day fund. So they have those sort of statutory protections that puts them uh, in a better position. But the other thing that I found interesting was Pew went back and looked at budget cuts from the last recession and how states have refilled those budget cuts, meaning that and they were heavily, you know, a lot in education, 
freezing funds for education, uh, cuts for higher education, social services, and Pew feels that you should have rebuilt those uh, those budget levels by now because it gives you some fat, and I know people who receive state funding don't consider it to be fat, but gives you some place to cut in the next recession. It seems counterintuitive, but if you haven't refilled those spending areas, you're starting the next recession at the bare bone and have less room to cut. So they thought it would be a good thing and would help states weather recession by refilling those cuts from, from say, 2008-2010, which Minnesota has done. So we have largely refilled that because, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, because as I remember back to the last recession, and this even lasted looking at state budgets into like 2011 and 2012, we were running constant massive deficits. So the question is, have we built up those state reserves enough to possibly cover another recession? Because I remember back to those times uh, having those constant budget crises and also making large cuts to state government. So we appear to be in better shape, correct, in terms of having those reserves. And then, as you also said, getting state government levels back up to where they were prior to the Great Recession. I don't think they'll have a a rainy day account large enough to negate the need for any other uh, responses should there be a recession. I mean, the state spends, you know, pushing uh, $48 billion over a two-year period. So any reduction in revenue is going to probably go deeper than that or at least feel the effects of that. What the rainy day fund wants to do is soften uh, the effects of cuts and perhaps negate the need for tax increases, which they tend not to want to do at the bottom of a recession. So the, the rainy day fund, and then you also have to agree when it's a rainy day, because that's right. a political decision that's made by legislatures, mm-hmm. um, is, to, is to soften the impact of that. And, uh, you know, at the other, on the other hand, you don't want to be taxing a lot of the economy at a time just to fill up rainy day funds during other times. So that's why they come up with uh, an idea that this would be a good, a good, safe, relatively safe amount, and that's where that 5% comes in. But no, there will be cuts to state mm-hmm. spending uh, at the time of and next recession. So another aspect you wrote about in this piece was the state and making contributions to pensions, because I didn't know this, but you talked about the fact that the legislature actually makes contribution decisions rather than having required contribution increases automatically as determined by actuaries, makes, which makes the state budget decision, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of easier, but does not necessarily make our pension situation better than other states. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of how that worked? Because I actually was not aware that we had that type of a decision-making when it comes to pensions, that it's actually, it sounds like the legislature who gets to decide those funding levels. Yeah, that was something that uh, Mark Haverman, who's the executive director of the Minnesota Center for Fiscal Excellence, which is uh, somewhat business-leaning, sort of middle uh, a Main Street business organization. Uh, so just to give you some perspective of where they come from, but their, their numbers are generally considered um, to be pretty uh, responsible. He saw that as sort of a half-full, half-empty situation. Mm-hmm. Yes, in a recession, because the legislature doesn't have automatic transfers into pensions, 
they have some flexibility to maybe put less in that year or next year in order to have more revenue for, for this emergency that they're in. But the other problem with that is it could further underfunding of state pensions. And Minnesota is, is better off than a lot of states as far as pension funding, but they're not at where they need to be. So he saw that as, as a helpful in the short term Mm-hmm. but has the potential to make the problem with pension funding worse in the long term. Right. So you talked to several people writing this piece, including uh, Mark Haveman, who is the executive director of the Minnesota Center for Fiscal Excellence, as we talked about, also the state economist, Laura Kalamakadis, and other people from Pew. Are they recommending any changes that we should be making here in Minnesota for the future in terms of uh, setting up budget reserves and preparing for an economic downturn? Pew's main recommendation, which gets pretty kind of nerdy, you know, down into the into the budgetary weeds, but they think you should stress test the spending side as well. So when a recession comes, your draw on state services actually increases. Somebody might go back to college because they're laid off and they want to get more education. Certainly social services become more in demand as unemployment grows. Uh, Pew's recommendation was that you should do uh, a stress test where you measure how much a recession might cause increased spending pressure and be able to be prepared for that. They cite Utah as a state that they think does that very well. And uh, the state economist said, even though that probably would not be her division, it would probably be the budget division at management and budget. She said that those would be good numbers for her to have and to the state to have. So that was the recommendation that Pew made that seemed to be have some reception uh, on the part of uh, the economist. Again, that was part of my conversation with Peter Callahan of MinPost talking about Minnesota's budget reserve since this topic has been in the news recently with the Minnesota budget surplus and, of course, with the next legislative session approaching. That's all the time we have for today on the program. I'm back with a live show tomorrow. I'll talk to you then.